whenever someone says to you, you've only heard one side of the story, you usually kind of expect that the other side of the story is not going to be as good. Uh, or it might counterbalance what it is that you've heard. Or you, you only know the half of it. Today, we're going to focus on <clears throat> the reality that sometimes we only hear half of the good news. But that it only gets better. The other half is, <clears throat> it doesn't contradict what we know. The other side of the story only magnifies what it is that we hear. And so many of you will be familiar. We've just sung so many songs that praise God for what he's done that all of our sins can be forgiven. And we get to announce that to people, that every sin that you have ever done can be forgiven. Every wrong thing that you said to somebody, it, it doesn't have to be held against you. Every thought that you've harbored of bitterness or anger towards another person, every wrong that you've taken, the Bible says that Jesus can take that wrong and he can separate it as far as the east is from the west. He promises that he can take all of those things and make them such that they are remembered no more. It's, wow, that's good news. And that is part of the good news that we share. But that is only part of it. There's more news that we have to share to people that we have to thank God for and to worship him. So let me give it to you in the form of an analogy and then we'll go to Hebrews chapter 3. If you were a person who was down on your luck financially and you had no resources, you literally had nothing to your name, but you had access to credit and so if you needed to eat, you could go and use a credit card and if you needed to pay your electric bill, you could put it on that. But if you don't have anything, every transaction that you're making is building to a debt that you owe. And just your basic necessities of food, shelter, and clothing amount this larger and larger debt that you have to pay. Now, it would be great news for you to hear, for somebody to come up to you and to say, you know that debt that you've been contributing to now for years? It's paid for. The debt is gone. You don't owe anything. That'd be worthy of celebration. That'd be great news to hear. But the question is, for how long? How long would that be good news? Well, until you get hungry again. Until the next bill comes. Because if, if the news is simply that the debt is gone, that brings you back to what? To zero. And the gospel is so much better and so much richer than finding out we're just back to square one. And that's what Hebrews chapter 3 is all about. So I'll invite you to take a Bible to open it to the third chapter in the book of Hebrews. This is in your New Testament. If you're using one of these Bibles that's provided for you, you'll find it on page 1002. 1002, Hebrews chapter And we're going to read the chapter in its entirety. It's 19 verses. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, 
You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Our message today is entitled, A New Identity. And that new identity is something that we see described just right as soon as our chapter opens. We're given a description of ourselves that says we're more than forgiven. We're we're more than forgiven. Our identity is not simply that our debt has been paid, but something else is true of us. And look at what is true of us. Therefore, holy brothers, and this can be brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. There's two words that are used to describe us, holy and heavenly. Now, the writer isn't just referring to one or two people in this congregation. He's referring to all of them. And saying to all of them that they have a new identity that is richer and greater than simply being forgiven. Now, they can be referred to as people who are holy and who have a heavenly calling. So, we, as Christians, can say that not only has our debt been paid, and so we're forgiven, 
but we could actually say of ourselves, we are holy. A term usually reserved for God or the things of God. But you and I can use this term, this description, for one another. That we are holy. And that we have a heavenly calling. And then the the way that this is throughout um, our chapter highlighted is with this description that we share. And so right there in verse 1, we're holy and we're heavenly because we share something. And then if you look at verse 14, it says, for we have come to share in Christ. Now, we started at chapter 3, but you actually see a lot more repetition if you have in mind what was said in chapter 2. So if your Bibles are still open, just look up to verse 14 of chapter 2. And you'll see how this word continues to be repeated. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, and that word could be translated, shared of the same things. So last week we talked about how Jesus was willing to share in our suffering. He was willing to share in our experience and be tempted in the ways that we're tempted. So he was willing to share those things with us. And now when we get to chapter 3, what it's telling us is that now we get to share in his things. He shared in our things. Now we get to share in his things. And so not only are our sins forgiven, but we share his righteousness. And therefore, we can refer to ourselves as holy. Why? Because we are? No. Do you feel really holy right now? If you look over your last week and the things that came into your mind or all the difficulties that came up, would that be a word that you would use to describe? You know, that was just a holy week. I, I, just, I, think, I just think it was great. No. And so we're, we're uncomfortable using it to describe ourselves or even to describe other people we know. We might use it to describe one special person that we can think of back in the day who, who maybe is not alive anymore and so they can't disprove it anymore and say, oh, they were really, you know, they, they had it all together and they just always, you know, could do great things. <clears throat> Our experience doesn't internally tell us that we're holy and that we're heavenly. This is an identity that we have because we share it with Christ. It's true of him. He was holy He was perfect. He never gave in to temptation. He never failed to persevere. And so what he's saying is that not only has he shared our sufferings, but he is sharing his righteousness, his riches, his grace with us so that we are holy and that we are heavenly. We can have a new identity connected to our relationship with him. So to go back to the illustration it would be good news to find out that all of our debts had been paid and that we were brought back to zero. But it's so much greater news to find out that now put into our account is enough money for the rest of our lives. That we're not just forgiven, but we're rich. And we have access now to the resources that we're going to need for whatever we need. 
And so when we get hungry again, when we need clothes again, when we need to pay the electric bill again, there's something there for that as well. And that's what he's saying, that that's the exchange that has happened, that he was willing to share in all of our struggles, and now we get to share in all of his resources. He's willing to do that for you and for me. That we could have confidence in our walk with him. And that's how we, that's the description that we see in verse six, that Christ is faithful over God's house and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We see from this description that God wants us as his children not to walk around and wonder, well, am I really one of his and does he really love me? but that he has shared everything with us in such a way that he wants us to have a confidence in him. He wants us to hold fast to our boasting in him. That we can look into a mirror and when everything tells us otherwise, we can say our identity is not in our performance or how much other people love us or the boss we're trying to impress or the friends who just left us. That's not our identity. Our identity is found in who God is, in what he has done for us, that he has made us holy. And he has given us a heavenly calling, and we can understand this in two ways, that it's a calling that comes from heaven to us, but it's also that we are one day going to be in heaven. And so we will get to there, in the most tangible of ways, share in everything that belongs to God. Going to heaven is being allowed to do that, to get everything that belongs to him and to share it and to enjoy it because he has said, you can come in and everything that's mine is yours. Everything that's mine is yours. Now the good news is we don't have to wait to heaven to start to experience the kind of confidence that should come from that. We just have to look at what it is that he was willing to do And if he was willing to share in our sufferings, why wouldn't he be willing to share with us his goodness? And so that's part of our new identity, that we are more than forgiven. We're holy. When God the Father looks at you and looks at me in all of our brokenness, in all of our continued struggles, he actually sees someone who's holy, who's perfect, who's never sinned and therefore should be in heaven. There's no reason we shouldn't be because when he looks at us, he looks at us through his son. That's what it means to be holy, that we are set apart. Every one of us asks the question at different times as to whether or not we matter. And that comes to our identity. We all have a unique identity, You have a unique name, a unique set of fingerprints, a unique story that nobody else has of when you were born, of of what's happened to you, what it is that you believe, what it is that makes you tick. It's unique. But every now and again, we ask ourselves, okay, but am I just one of seven billion? Because there's seven billion of us right now that are all unique and are different. 
And am I just lost in this crowd? From, from God's perspective, I've kind of seen pictures of what the world looks like from outer space. And you know what you don't see? You don't see people, right? You see a shot from a satellite. You see green and you see blue. So can God, who's up there and who's aware of everything and knows everyone, can he really love me in a specific way, in a particular way, that he can get my name right? And he knows my story. And that I can have this relationship with him. And this is what it says, that we are holy. Holy from whose perspective? From God's perspective. And then there's this amazing phrase as, as it unfolds in, in verse 6. So he makes this comparison between Jesus and Moses and, and says that Jesus is better than Moses as the builder of a house is better than the house itself. But then in verse 6, what he says is, we are his house. We are what he is focused upon. We are that which he is building. And so what every person who would have been familiar with the Old Testament and realized how holy the temple was, and, and even within the temple, there were, there were various spaces of holiness all the way into the holy of holies that everything that they could associate with the awe and the wonder of worship in the temple, the writer is saying, God, when he looks at you, sees you as holy, and you are the house that he's working on. You are, your identity, your new identity in him is what is he spending his time on, to build you up. To know that someone so great is paying attention to you knows you, cares about you, is willing to share his resources with you and say, God, what are you doing today? I'm working on them. Really? There's a lot of things you could be doing today. I know. But I'm doing what I love. And I love working on these people. I love shaping them and growing them and giving them a new identity so that when everybody else tries to shoot them down, I want to create in them a firm and a confident faith that they can maintain till the end and overcome all of the difficulties and the barriers that will come their way and the things that will try to weigh them down. And that's who you are today. If you're a Christian, you are so much more than forgiven. You are holy. You are called. These aren't words for the special Christians. Every one of you could say, I'm a saint. If you're a Christian, every one of you could say, I'm holy and I will be in heaven, not because of you and not because of the choices that you've made over this past week, but because of who God is and what it is that he's willing to share with you. So we're more than forgiven. Why? Because Jesus was more than faithful. That's the next part. We get this, so we get this description right away that we're holy, that we're heavenly, and then it goes into this comparison between Jesus and Moses and they were both faithful. Says Moses was faithful. He did what he was asked to do. Jesus did what he was asked to do. So why is Jesus greater than Moses? Because he was more than faithful. Jesus had a relationship with the Father that Moses did not have. And it says that Jesus himself is the builder. And so this comparison between the builder and the house and who should get more glory, who should get more honor. If we were to see a piece of artwork on a wall and see it in all of its beauty, would we give more credit to the paint or to the artist? 
Who, who gets the award if it wins an award? The artist who put it together. And so the builder of the house is worthy of more glory than the house itself. And then what he tells us, reminding us of the truth that he had said in chapter 1, is that Jesus is this builder. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the one who has fashioned each and every one of us. And he is the one who is recreating us with a new identity and sharing with us all of his resources because he was more than faithful. And so he is not faithful as a servant, but he is the son. And there, that's the point, that he has this unique relationship with the son, as the son with the father. And so when he builds it, we know it can last. When he's responsible, and he's the general contractor, putting it all together, our confidence can be so much greater than if we were the ones who were left in charge, that if it was all up to us. And sometimes, even in all of our imagination, when we think of God or when you think of Jesus, sometimes we fail to allow this part of the story to come into our minds, that he is alive, that he lives again. There was one pastor who toured around Latin America and South America, and he just observed the artwork in all of the churches. He said in almost every church that he went to, if there was a representation of Jesus somewhere on the walls, there was usually a picture of Jesus as a baby born and Jesus on a cross suffering. Now, those are parts of the Christian story, and we celebrate those. But as he went around and just saw that that was consistently what was in cathedral after cathedral after cathedral, he said, when I saw that, I realized that in the imagination... Everybody knows that Jesus was born and that Jesus died. But I'm not sure they know that he lived and that he lives again. He did more than die for us. He now lives for us. And he is now working for us. And so we can have that confidence in him of what he is doing right now as the reigning son for each and every one of us. And after highlighting that, then we get into this long section from verses 7 through 19 about how therefore, if all of that is true, what is facing us today has implications that are so much greater and more significant than just today. Today is critical because today has implications beyond today. And so he goes, and then that becomes the phrase that he repeats right through the end of it. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then we are supposed to exhort one another in verse 13, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15, so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what we're talking about today is larger and bigger and has more implications than just today. It has implications for all of eternity as to whether or not we will receive and inherit the promises and embrace all of the good things that our Father is willing to share with us. But there are some who will not share in all of these promises. And our, our writer gets to the 
the main issue of why people will not. And he says it's an issue of the heart. Nobody will miss out because of bad timing. Nobody will miss out because they, did, they didn't try hard enough. And so it was a lack of performance. Nobody will miss out because they weren't tall enough or they weren't fast enough or they weren't strong enough. He tells us that it is primarily an issue inside, in the heart, where the battle rages as to whether or not we're willing to receive the promise and all the goodness that Christ offers. Or we'll say, no thanks, I don't want it. I'll just keep going the way I'm going. But the, the battle really happens inside of the heart. And actually, in some way, part of just even the architecture of this building is designed to remind us of this. It's the whole idea behind stained glass in churches. That when you go and look at a stained glass church from the outside, what does it look like? How many colors do you see? Not very many. It has a very plain and simple look. And so if you stand outside of these windows right now, everything will be shades of brown. It's only when you come inside that you get all this variation of color. And it's an architectural way, not only here, but wherever they use it, to say that what matters most is what's on the inside, not what you see on the outside. What matters most is what's in the heart and the inclination of the heart towards the Father, not what you see on the outside. So not a person's stature, not where they are and how many people respect them, but what is their heart and its relationship towards God. And in these verses it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And the word there for hear is much richer than simply listening. But if when you're listening and when you hear, there is within you this desire to follow, to repent, to give your life to God, And so that in the hearing of it, you're also attracted to it. So there's a softening that's taken place. There's an openness that exists in you. If that's there, if that happens, then he's saying don't harden it. But when you really hear the message, when you really understand it, it is attractive. It is beautiful to know how God views you and what it is that God is willing to do for you and for me. And when we hear it, we can then, we we can respond in such a way that we ignore it and we harden it. But that's something active that we have to do. But when the message comes, it comes with an attractiveness and with a beauty that if you sit here and you say, I do want to follow God. If somebody would love me that much, that they would share in all my suffering and then share with me all of their goodness and all of their riches. I don't want to reject that. I don't want to walk away from that. I don't want to miss out on that. If there is within you the desire, then you're hearing his voice. You're not just hearing the message, you're hearing his voice, that he is calling you, that he is drawing you to himself. And so the writer is saying, if we hear that, do not make the mistake of thinking, okay, well, then tomorrow I'll do something about it. We can only ever obey or disobey God in the moment, in today. You can't go back to tomorrow and choose whether you're going to obey God or disobey God. And you can't go forward, or sorry, did I say back to tomorrow? 
You can't go back to yesterday and make choices. And you can't go forward into tomorrow and make choices. Today is actually the only day you can obey God or disobey God. Today is the only opportunity you have to say yes to him or to say no to him. Because you can only obey him and align your will with his in the moment. And so today, in one sense, we could say, is always the most important day. This is the most important day of your life. Because it is the only day that you actually have a choice now about whether you can follow God or reject him. Whether you want to continue to trust in yourself or whether or not you want to embrace what it is that he has done for you. And so he goes on to say that those who missed out in the Old Testament on entering into the promised land missed out because of unbelief. They missed out because they wouldn't by faith take hold of the promise. The promise was before them. The path was laid out for them. And so they didn't miss out because they weren't strong enough. They couldn't organize themselves enough to defeat the Egyptian. Everything was done for them, but they missed out because of unbelief. Sort of what we would think of as a small thing, but with huge implications. So as I was thinking of that, you know, it doesn't say they missed out because of hatred or they missed out because of murder or they missed out because of lust. They missed out because of unbelief, because of their inability or lack of desire to take hold of what God was doing in them. So as I was thinking of that dynamic, I came back to an insight from the screw tape letters about sin and how it works in us and the difference between what we might want to say are small sins and big sins. And if you don't know the the premise of the book, it's a demon giving advice to a demon. So this is from the perspective of the enemy of our souls. This is from the perspective of the one who doesn't want us to make it in, doesn't want us to receive the promise. And so it's a, a more mature demon giving advice to a less mature one. And this is what he says. So this is screw tape writing. And the two of them are talking about a Christian. So they say of this Christian, I'm almost glad to hear that he's still a churchgoer and a communicant. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we don't have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell 
is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft undertow, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. The safest way for us to miss out on all that God has promised is to feel convicted that we should do something, that we should repent, that we should surrender, that we should obey. And not decide that we're going to go do something horrible, but just decide that we're going to wait. We'll just give that a thought for another time. And the cumulative effect of ignoring his voice and not heeding his call and not choosing the identity that he has given us is that we, we fail, we miss out because of unbelief. See, if we do have this new identity and we, we wrestle and say, am I really one of his two dynamics that will happen that almost seem uh, counterproductive, but at one and the same time, we will realize that we are the beneficiaries of more than we could have ever imagined. The gospel is better news than we ever give it credit for and what God is willing to do for us. So at one and the same time, we will worship God for all that he's done. And on the other hand, we will take even the smallest of sins or insults to God more seriously. We'll pay attention to them. Not because we compare them to other things, but because our love for the Father wants us to be in such a relationship with him that even the small ones matter. We don't want to take it lightly because we are amazed at how great a gift it is that we have been given. This is the new identity that you and I have if we are in Christ. If we share with him, we are, in spite of all of our failures, in spite of all of our struggles, we're more than forgiven because he was more than faithful. And so the choices that we now make, we know have implications for much more than just today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how good you are to us, how willing you are to share with us all that is yours. And Father, you desire for us as your children to to have confidence in you, to boast in you, but we acknowledge that there is a war within our hearts. That there is a struggle inside to choose to follow you and to accept and to embrace all that you've done. So I just pray that you would help all of us here to realize that today is the most important day. It's the only opportunity that we have now to hear you and to follow you, to surrender, to praise and to worship you or to run from you and to ignore you. Father, help us not to be fooled into thinking we have some other opportunity, but help us to be humble and to choose to follow you today. In your son's name, we pray. Amen.